Preface of Life of Dorothea Lynde Dix. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phyllis Vincelli. Life of Dorothea Lynde Dix by Francis Tiffany. Preface. The question has very naturally been raised why heretofore no attempt should have been made at an adequate biography of Dorothea Lynde Dix. In fact, why, except for a few brief accounts of her career, printed in magazines, read before private clubs, or inserted in encyclopedias, no real information is to be had about her. Here is a woman who, as the founder of vast and enduring institutions of mercy in America and in Europe, has simply no peer in the annals of Protestantism. To find her parallel in this respect, it is necessary to go back to the lives of such memorable Roman Catholic women as St. Teresa of Spain or Santa Chiara of Assisi, and to the amazing work they did in founding throughout European Christendom great conventual establishments. Why, then, do the majority of the present generation know little or nothing of so remarkable a story? It was from no lack of pressure on the part of admirers and venerators of the character and work of so exceptional a woman that this came about. The invincible obstacle lay in her own positive refusal to permit anything to be written of her. Living to the advanced age of 85, and never pausing in her career of beneficent activity till fully 80, she cherished all the disdain of the heroic soldier setting out on ever-fresh campaigns, at the thought of quitting the post of present duty to look after the luster of past laurels. Not in the winning of laurels, but in the succor of human misery, lay the dominating purpose of her life. A woman of great pride and dignity of character, fully conscious, too, of the immensity of the work she had achieved on two continents, she yet shrank in utter aversion from what seemed to her the degradation of mere public notoriety. Two equally strong, but totally contrasted, natures lay in her. The one, the outcome of a sensitive, suffering temperament, instinctively seeking to shield itself from gall or wound, the other born of the fortitude of a martyr in fronting danger, loneliness, and obloquy, in championing the cause of the friendless and ready to perish. To all this, must be added a depth of self-abnegating religious faith which made her life one long struggle to prostrate a spirit naturally proud and imperious at the footstool of God in the lowly cry, Not unto me, not unto me, but unto thy name be the praise. 
As far back as in 1851, Mrs. Sarah J. Hale, then engaged on a book to be titled Lives and Characters of Distinguished Women, applied to Miss Dix for data from which to write an account of her career. To this, as to numberless-like appeals, Miss Dix replied in the following strain, so indicative of her persistent feeling in the matter. Quote, I feel it right to say to you frankly that nothing could be undertaken which would give me more pain and serious annoyance, which would so trespass on my personal rights or interfere more seriously with the real usefulness of my mission. I am not ambitious of nominal distinctions, and notoriety is my special aversion. My reputation and my services belong to my country. My history and my affections are consecrated to my friends. It will be soon enough when the angel of the last hour shall have arrested my labors to give their history and their results. This period cannot be many years distant. I confess that giving unnecessary publicity to women while they yet live and to their works seems to me singularly at variance with the delicacy and modesty which are the most attractive ornaments of their sex. End quote. For years following, such ardent friends as Honorable Alexander Randall of Annapolis, Maryland, General John A. Dix of New York, and Reverend William G. Elliott, D.D. of St. Louis, importuned her not to suffer such a life story to die with her. Footnote. Though always beginning his letters to her with dear sister, no traceable relationship existed between Miss Dix and General John A. Dix. Miss Dix's admiration, however, was always great for the man who united such varied qualities as those of the pure statesman, the brave soldier, who made the country ring with his, quote, if any man haul down the American flag, shoot him on the spot, end quote. And the Christian scholar who gave the world such devout and beautiful translations of medieval Latin hymns. And footnote. Both Mr. Randall and Dr. Eliot themselves offered to write out a detailed memorial of her career if only she would dictate to them the leading incidents and supply the needful papers. But she had no time nor inclination to turn aside. Years later, however, when extreme old age had rendered the further prosecution of her labors an impossibility, both Mr. Randall and General Dix renewed their entreaties and succeeded in extracting a half-promise from her to make out needful memoranda and reduce the confused mass of her papers to some kind of chronological order. Thus, in June 1878, a letter from General Dix to Mr. Randall bears witness to the earnestness with which they were cooperating towards this mutually desired end. Quote, Seafield, West Hampton, New Jersey, June 25th, 
1878. My dear sir, I wrote to Miss Dix, urging her to make full notes of what she had done for the insane. There is no record like hers. I do not accept Howard or Mrs. Fry, and it is due to our country to give a faithful account of the labors of her life. I have pressed this duty on her for years, and trust your solicitations and those of other friends may decide her to perform it. Very truly yours, John A. Dix. End quote. Still later on, Mr. Randall writes urgently to Miss Dix to know what progress has been made toward the fulfillment of the promise given. Quote, how comes on the memoir of Miss Dix? You owe it to our country properly to attend to it yourself. I know you will not charge me with flattery when I say that if any other female in the country had accomplished half as much as you, you would have procured her life to be written or written it yourself. Pardon my plainness and repeated request and urgency in this matter, for I do really think such a life as yours has not filled up its measure of practical good until posterity has the benefit of its example. Two short extracts from replies of mystics to such letters of Mr. Randall's as the above will suffice to show how baffling to her mind was this whole biographical matter. Quote, Boston, Mass., October 13th, 1870. I assure you of my respect for your opinions and desire to accept and act upon your request if I can feel quickened to this burthensome undertaking. There is, I think, great difficulty in writing of oneself. It is almost impossible to present subjects where the chief actor must be conspicuous and not seem to be or really be egotistical. Then much of my work has been where neglects and omissions demanded remonstrance and persistent efforts for reforms and amended usages, implying much wrong on the part of others, who must be at the least noticed as blameworthy, through either habitual negligence or willful wrong. End quote. Quote, Trenton, New Jersey, May 10th, 1880. I have found myself pressed under the obligation of a promise to yourself, at once honorable to fulfill, and yet most difficult and oppressive to carry forward. It is impossible for anyone to realize how painful it is to rouse from within a half-century's painful past, embracing every form and condition of distress, suffering, misery, and adversity. Language seems to lose force in words to define weakly what has been and now is in the present hour as in the expired years. I cannot, my valued friend, Bring into order suitably for a brief memoir any written details that seem to me fitly to convey to any reader what cannot be realized, because there is no relative standard of contrast or comparison. The whole of my years, 
from the age of ten to the present, differ essentially from the experience and pursuits of those around me. End quote. Yet one more ground of reluctance on the part of Miss Dix to having any record of her life given to the world must here in conclusion be noted. It was one frequently emphasized by her, and is too characteristic alike of the pity of her heart and of her habitual way of looking on her own exceptional history to be omitted. Such an account, she feared, would exert an unhealthy influence in inducing romantic young women to think it their mission to undertake some work of a similar kind. No, let them fall in love, marry, and preside over a happy home, she would say. It will be a thousand times better for them. She, who had never known the meaning of home, even in childhood, who had led a lonely and wandering life, who had carried ever in her heart an unsatisfied yearning after those closer ties which unite human beings in the heaven of tender family relations. She, too, who, in her redeeming career of half a century, had sounded all the depths of human misery, and knew how stern the conflict and cruel the wounds inevitable in a lifelong struggle to secure redress, felt, as none who had not shared the like experience could feel, that nothing short of an irresistible call from God should induce anyone to embark on such a work. The result of these persistent solicitations was that toward the very close of her life, when well-nigh helpless with disease, Miss Dix made faltering attempts to reduce her papers to order. She was then too feeble for the task, and they were left in a state of great confusion. Shortly before her death, however, she gave to her trusted friend and executor, Mr. Horace A. Lamb of Boston, her full consent that if such remained his final judgment, the papers might be used in the preparation of a memoir of her life and work. Unfortunately, in what must be regarded as a mistaken sense of the duty of self-effacement, she had previously issued positive commands to her many friends to destroy her own private letters. A few of these friends happily refused to obey the injunction, and to their pious care for her memory it is alone due that any vivid picture can at this date be drawn of her. The writer of her biography would take this occasion to express his sense of great personal obligation to Miss Augusta I. Appleton of the Boston Athenaeum and to Miss Catherine H. Stone for their patient and discriminating labor in reducing the original chaos of the papers to any kind of manageable order. Also, to the superintendents of insane asylums in many quarters of the United States and of Canada, especially to Dr. John S. Butler, Dr. John W. Ward, Dr. Charles H. Nichols, and Dr. Horace A. Butolf, to Daniel Hack Took, M.D., F.R.C.P., 
of Hanwell, England, and to William Rathbone, Esquire, M.P. of Liverpool, as well as to numerous private friends of Miss Dix. He would here record his cordial thanks for constant courtesy and invaluable aid. F.T. Cambridge, Mass., February 16, 1890. End of Preface